You know, well, there, there are two subjects that if you talk about in a sermon, it makes even the most committed Christians feel guilty. One of those subjects is witnessing. Evangel, oh, yeah, that's right, we're going to dismiss our kids. Look at that, I got one week. One week I got it. There we got. So, off they go. So one of those, obviously, is witnessing. You know, we bring up the issue of witnessing, sharing our faith, doing those kinds of things. Almost every single believer says, I need to do that more. You know, and, and there's this, this twinge of conviction, this twinge of, twinge of guilt. There's a know that they, they can step it up to another level, and they need to be more active in that. The other area is prayer. The vast majority of believers would say, man, I really need to pray more. You bring up the subject of prayer, and, and immediately there's this reaction, well, I, I pray, but you know what? I don't think I pray enough, and I can pray about more things, and I can be more faithful in my prayers, and I can be better about tracking. And there's all kinds of things that go with that. Well, this morning, the great, one of the greatest stories ever told deals with the issue of prayer. We've been working through a series this summer entitled The Greatest Stories Ever Told, and we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. And we've been, in particular, looking at some of the, the parables that are kind of off the beaten path, right? You know, we've been kind of venturing out to ones that, that aren't as familiar to most of us. We've been kind of staying away from the Good Samaritan and the parable of the sower and, and, and the prodigal son and, and those kinds of stories. And we've been looking at some of the other ones, and there's over 40 different parables that Jesus teaches, then and this morning, I want to focus in on one in Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, I'd learn, love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11. My assumption is some of you didn't bring a Bible this morning. You will find a Bible underneath your seat, and you'll find our text today on that, in that Bible on page 880. Luke chapter 11. We're going to focus specifically on verses 5 through 13. But I want to put it in context for us, and some of this we've just kind of seen unfold for us as we've said the Lord's Prayer together, because at the beginning of Luke chapter 11, we find Luke's version of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. We, we know it more familiarly from the Gospel of Matthew, where it is embedded in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, but we pick up with verse 1 of chapter 11. He was praying in a certain place, and that refers to Jesus. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So here's the deal. Jesus is off from them. We don't know if they can see him or whatever, but he's separated himself from the disciples, and he's in prayer. And when he comes back, one of the disciples says, you know what, man, you need to teach us how to pray. We're, we're not, I don't know if I'm doing it right. You know, I don't know if I know all that I'm supposed to know about prayer. The Jews usually prayed three times a day. They tried to limit it to three times a day because they didn't want to annoy God by praying more than that. You know, and they, they knew kind of all that stuff, but they're saying, you know, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. You need to teach us how to pray. Now, step one of those is what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Luke puts it this way in verse 2. Whenever you pray, say, Father. We know it from Matthew, Father, who, our Father who art in heaven. It says, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom Come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we, also, we ourselves also forgive everyone 
in debt to us and do not bring us into, into temptation. So they start out, Jesus starts out, first of all, with the, the what of prayer. And I'm not, I, boy, I wish we could kind of camp here and go over this, but we're committed to looking at the parable. But let me just give you a summary of what Jesus says in verses 2 through 4. He basically says, pray about everything. Pray about, pray about the past, pray about the present, pray about the future. He talks about praying about the physical, the spiritual, the relational. He talks about praying for the personal and praying for the global. Pray about everything. Prayer should encompass everything that we're about. This isn't a certain list that somehow if we miss parts of it or whatever. We, the, Jesus is trying to say everything is inside of him. It starts out with your relationship with God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Reverenced, honored be your name. That's the spiritual aspect, the eternal aspect. And it just flows on from there all the way down to, you know what, God, we're going to get hungry today. Would you make sure we get something to eat? And it runs the gamut everywhere in between. So Jesus starts out, first of all, with what to pray about. But then he shifts gears in verse 5. And this is where we want to focus today. After he gets done talking about what to pray, he talks about how to pray. And this is what he says. He also said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, in other words, because he's annoying him to death, you know, nagging him, he says he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, this is a very common picture in the ancient world. This is not something that we would experience ourselves, right? We'd, we'd pull out our smartphones, we'd look for the 24-hour convenience store, we'd go off to try to find some frozen burritos that we could bring home, throw in the microwave, feed them to this late-night traveler that showed up, right? That's the way we would handle it. That's not the way it worked in the ancient world. There's so much of this is, just comes right out of the everyday life of the people, especially in the rural areas. People would travel early in the morning, stop because it got really hot, and then late in the day they would begin to travel again. So it wasn't unusual for somebody to show up well after dark when you're already on your way to bed or pretty much in bed. This wasn't untypical. People would be traveling when it wasn't outside of the heat of the day. So here's a guy who said, all right, I'm going to stop at this place tonight, and it just took him a little longer to get there than he thought, so he shows up at midnight. And lo and behold, the light at the Motel 6 has gone out, so he's looking for a place to stay. It's not the way it works. You almost always stayed with other people along the journey. The inns in those days were not very safe, so he shows up at this friend's house late into the evening, and he knocks on his door and says, I've just arrived. Can I spend the night with you? In those days, in the first century world, hospitality was a sacred trust. So not only would you open your door to them, but you would feel literally a tremendous sense of obligation to feed this person. It wasn't enough to say, yeah, yeah, you come in, you know, you can sleep with the, the cows. That That's not what they did, you know. They would 
invite them into their home, and then they would present them with a meal because that was a sacred obligation. There's only one problem. This guy didn't have any food left. You know, they did all their baking in the morning, and now it's late in the day, and this guy's family has already consumed all the loaves that they prepared, so he doesn't have any food to offer him. And so it's, he feels such an obligation, he goes next door to his neighbor. And this is what life is like inside of that house, right? Almost all the houses in the rural areas in the days of Jesus were one-room houses. They had one door and one window. That was it. And inside, you would, they, they, they were pretty much divided like two-thirds, one-third. Two-third would, two-thirds of it would just be at the dirt level, and they would put out like grasses or reeds or whatever. They, they basically build like a, a rug, if you will, you know, just to kind of keep the dirt down a little bit. And then, then they would have, the other third would be just slightly built up on a platform. And up there they would have the stove, and that's where the family slept. So at night, when they got ready for bed, it was cooling off, that kind of thing. These houses weren't well insulated. They would close the windows and the doors, and they were almost always open when they were awake. When they were, when they were up and about, they were open because it gave them light, right? But once they were kind of done for the day, they closed all that up. They got the fire going, and the whole family would sleep together on the platform right around the fire. They would huddle in together to keep warm. Most of them, the only thing they had to use for a blanket was their cloak that kind of went over their tunic. So they would huddle up together. In addition to that, the bigger animals, like the sheep and the cows and stuff, would be off in a barn, but all the smaller animals would be in the house with them the chickens and the goats and that kind of stuff, they'd be all down on the other part. So you get this picture. It's midnight, right? This guy's in bed with his wife, and they, for the most part, they just slept on mats that were on the floor, you know, up on this raised platform. So he, everybody's asleep. For him to get up and to give this guy some bread to serve to his friend, he, he's going to wake up his wife. He's going to wake up his kids. He's going to wake up the chickens. He's going to wake up the goats. He's going to wake up everybody. So he says, go away. Go away. I'm already in bed. Can't you see my door shut? And that's a universal do not disturb sign in the ancient world when the door is shut. He said, go away. And this guy just keeps banging on the door, as Jesus says. He says, I tell you that even though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, because you know, after he's just standing there knocking on the door. I need food. I need. This is like Sheldon in the Big Bang theory, right? He just keep banging on the door, and eventually the guy said, "You know, we're not going to get any sleep until I give him some bread. I'm just going to get up and give him some bread." You know, and you know that's it's that kind of idea. And Jesus goes on to say, "So out of that story, he goes on to say, so I say to you, keep asking, and it'll be given to you." Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be open to you. Comes right out of the parable, right? For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who searches, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Because what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? And there's a kind of a play going on there, because there was a a, fit, a snake, a, a waterborne kind of snake that looked like a fish. It really wasn't edible, more dangerous, all that kind of stuff. You know, you're not going to do that. 
to, or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Sometimes when scorpions would ball up, they could actually look like an egg. And, and so he said, you know, if you then, who are evil, in other words, we who are fallible dads, that even in the best of our efforts, we're still going to make mistakes and bring some bruising into the life of our children. If you who are evil then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, just a few things. One of the, one of the challenges with this passage is that it has the tendency to paint Jesus, paint the Father as a reluctant granter of our prayer requests, doesn't it? You know, it, it, it's, and, and this isn't the only story that Jesus tells along this line in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to flip over just a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 18, just on page 889, he tells it very, very much the same way. He's talking about the end times and what's going to happen and how it's going to be and, and that kind of stuff and, and how they should be interceding. And, and he tells this parable that kind of brings out the same kind of idea that, you know, maybe God's reluctant to answer our prayers. He says, then he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not become discouraged. And he's talking here about the, the end times. He says, there was a judge in one town who didn't fear God or respect men. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. This judgeship, mo most of the times, most of the issues were settled, but, you know, you'd go to the elders of the village or whatever, but, but regionally there were these judges that were appointed by the governors who were appointed by Rome, and they really looked at these positions of being a regional judge as their opportunity to fill their pockets and then get back to Rome. You know, so... This was not an issue. These roles weren't, weren't really about justice. They were about profit, you know. And so he, he got this widow who's got nothing to give to this judge, and she keeps coming to him. And, and verse 4 says, For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to him, Even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, she's driving me crazy, I will give her justice so she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. And that's a picture. <laughs> God in that particular is supposed to be the judge, right? He's the one who's giving the answer. And, and he goes on and he teaches out of that. Are we to believe that God is a reluctant grantor of our petitions? That he's the neighbor who's gone to sleep and doesn't want to get up and hear our prayers? Are we to envision God as a judge who says, listen, if you don't have something in your hand that I can profit by, don't even bother knocking on my office door because I'm not going to give you anything. If you don't have a way of bribing me, if you don't have something to offer me, if you don't have something to move me along, I'm not going to decide for you. Is that the way we're supposed to picture God? Are we supposed to picture God as kind of sitting in his, his heavenly recliner with a remote in hand and a cold drink in his other hand, and when you knock on the door, he says, hey, Malachi, get the door, and he says, oh, you know, it's Neil, and he says, well, listen, I, you know, this is, the, this is the Milky Way championships, and they're in awe, tell them to come back later, you know? I mean, is that the way we're supposed to understand God? And I think the answer to that question, let me rephrase that, I know the answer to that question is no. That's not what Jesus is intending for us to get. His point here is not so much that they line up as though they're similar to one another, but his point is the contrast between the two. Everything else in this passage of Scripture indicates the certainty and the readiness and the goodness of God in responding to our petitions. You know, it doesn't say keep asking and you might get something. It doesn't say keep searching and maybe he'll lead you to something. It doesn't say keep knocking 
And if you catch him at the right time and he's in a good mood, maybe he'll open the door for you. It doesn't say any of those things. It says if you keep asking, it's going to be given to you. If you are searching, you're going to find because God is going to lead you to it. If you are knocking, will the, if the door will indeed be open to you. And he goes, for he says, for everyone who asks does indeed receive. Everyone who seeks does indeed find. Everyone who knocks, the door is open to them. And if you, we as earthly fathers, in our best efforts, try to bless our children, how much more your heavenly father doesn't have any of the baggage of fallenness to go with it, is ready to answer our prayers. The picture is not that God is reluctant to give to us. But in contrast, if if this is the way it works, even if you, can pray, if you can go to your neighbor and badger him into getting what you need, what's it going to be like when you go to a God who's ready to give it to you up front before you ever knocked on the door? Who knew what you needed before you ever got there? In fact, this God is so good that he's prepared to give you the ultimate gift. That's the gift of himself, which here is called the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, before we move on to what I think is the point of the parable, part of the question we have to ask, well, you know, what, what happens with my prayer? Do I always get what I ask for? Now, here's how I'd answer that question, and I'm not trying to engage in pastoral doublespeak. God will always answer our prayer, but he doesn't always give us the answers that we're looking for. You know, I have been praying for a hole-in-one for 20 years, God has still not given me a hole-in-one. You know, I, I'm being somewhat frivolous, and it's not high on the top of my list, but you know what I mean. And, I, and, I, and, and sometimes this is very troubling. We just have to be honest, right? I mean, you, you've, you've got a, a family member or a colleague or a worker or whatever, and they're 38 years of age, and they've got three kids at home, and they've got cancer, and you're praying for their healing, and, and they're not healed. And they die. And it brings devastation into the family. And, you, and you're thinking, how can this be good? I mean, I, I understand the challenge. But God says, when you pray to me, I'm going to give you an answer. It may not be the answer you expected. It may not even be the answer that you like. But it is going to be the answer that's best in the way his wisdom works. And somewhere in the midst of that, you and I may have struggles with understanding that wisdom, but that doesn't mean that God's not acting in his wisdom. He will indeed answer our prayers, and often we don't see the answers because we really don't want to accept the answers that he's given to us. So let's move on a little bit. What is the point then of this parable? What is Jesus trying to say to us about prayer? We, we know that he's taught us about what to pray for, everything. What is he trying to teach us in this prayer? And what he's trying to teach us is how to pray. And with that, he's trying to say, pray persistently. Pray with a sense of tenacity, you know. Just, just get in it and stay after it and keep on praying and praying and praying and praying. Now, you know, he wants us to be like the neighbor who has a guest sitting at the table with no food on it, this person feels a tremendous sense of personal obligation. It would be a blow to their character and reputation and everything else. It, it, it would be a, a smear on their, on their life if they didn't get a chance to 
feed this person so much so he's willing to go over and disturb the whole neighborhood in order to get a few loaves of bread. God wants us to have that kind of persistence. Or like a widow who comes before a judge who's saying, well, what do you have to offer? And she's saying, I got nothing. She keeps coming every single day, and the only thing she has to offer is making this guy's life miserable. So he gets to a certain point where he's ready to give her what she asks, which is for justice. God wants us to be persistent in prayer. He wants us to have a sense of tenacity in it. He wants us to be committed to it. So the question then is why? Why is persistence or tenacity in prayer so important? In fact, we've got a couple of minutes here. I, let's take just a few answers from the floor. Why do you think prayer is so persistent? Why is persistence in prayer so important? So it, it shows our level of commitment and, and, and to it, right? It's not frivolous, but it's meaningful. It's, it's something that's important to us. Yep. Okay. It, it helps us in some ways to actually see what's really important in the midst of the prayer request. Yeah. Behind you, Bob, and then we'll come to you, Bob. Go ahead, Daniel. Okay. Yep. Okay. By trust. Jerry? Okay, and, and I do think it brings other people in. Yep. Alan? Okay. Okay. So it's indicative of, of our relationship, helps nurture our relationship with him. Okay. So it gives us, it gives us permission, right, to, to hang in there. Okay, yeah. Leo? Okay, yep. Good. You guys just want to get out early. That's why we're running out of questions. That's all right. Now, let me, let, let me give you a, a few answers to this. I mean, there, there, I think there are lots of answers to this probably, but... Let me point out some of the ones that I think are most important for us to recognize today. Because most of us sitting here today say, you know, I pray, but I don't pray as persistently as I should. You know, and confessionally, that's, that's where I stand. You know, and, and, and we should be, the invitation here is for us to be like the nagging neighbor that just won't go away because we're reaching out to God in prayer. We need to be persistent in our prayer, dedicated to it fervent in it, you know, exercising our prayer lives with a tremendous level of tenacity. Well, why is that important? And I, I want to give you a couple of answers. And part of the reason that persistence in prayer is so important to our spiritual lives, if you will, is that persistence in prayer is really born or has its genesis out of the recognition of our utter dependence upon God. And for most of us who struggle with being persistent in prayer, the number one reason we do so is because we are too self-sufficient rather than God-dependent in our struggles. 
And, and this, is, this is my issue. I mean, I, I, so I know how to fix this, and I just go after it. Instead of waiting on God, calling out to God, crying out to God, and the aspect of being dependent upon God, acknowledging our utter dependence upon God, recognizing and embodying, incarnating even, if you will, our utter dependence upon God is fundamental to the way that we walk with God. It's fundamental to our salvation experience. Until you and I get to a place where we recognize that no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we are, no matter how much we rise up above everybody around us in our goodness and our care and righteousness and all kinds, until we get to a place where we know that we have absolutely nothing to offer God that makes us worthy of him, and we feel all the weight of on it, we, we really don't get to a place where we come to saving faith in Christ. Because Christ, faith in Christ isn't just like the last piece to all of our works. It's the recognition that all of this, all of our works, all of our efforts, all of our desire to be as good as we can so God will be happy with us, that all of that is, is, is like filthy rags in the eyes of God. It's, it's like something the horse leaves along the side of the roadway on his way back to the barn. It, it's just not worth anything. And we realize that we are utterly and totally and completely dependent upon God to redeem us. And it's that same level in recognition of our dependence upon God that really is the seed ground for persistent prayer. And, and, and it is fundamental to a life that really walks with God. It's basic to the way you walk with God. I, I remember one time, a long, long time ago, I was in some kind of a gathering or worship experience or whatever, and, and Gordon McDonald, longtime pastor of Grace Chapel over Lexington, was speaking, and he was telling the story. I think he was doing a sermon out of the book of Acts, but when Peter was in prison or whatever, but and about ready to be executed, and, and he, he made a reference to a moment in his journey with Gail where one of their children was in the hospital and was literally on the verge of death. The doctors had done everything they could for the child, and, and they just said, we've done everything we can. Now we're just going to sit back and see what happens. And, and he, said, I, I can, he said, I can remember that moment where I felt utterly helpless to do anything else. And yet, because of his recognition of God's involvement in the whole thing, his helplessness did not breed hopelessness. Because in that helplessness, he actually experienced a new freedom of prayer that he had never had before. And one of the reasons God calls us to be people who are persistent in our prayer is because it cultivates within us, help us to recognize that we indeed are utterly dependent upon God. Whether, it, 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 whether we're praying, as, as Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 18 with this parable of the unjust judge and, and the widow, whether we're praying for there to be a global awakening, a refreshing of righteousness, for God to hold back the darkness, and if we're praying about that, you and I realize we're, we're powerless to really bring that to, what, what, what are the few prayers of some people gathered on a off the beaten path piece of property in Sterling, Massachusetts, what do our prayers have to do with changing the direction of human history? Nothing. Because we're utterly dependent upon God to answer our prayers and make that miss. In the list, you know, some of you have prayed for years for a loved one to be changed. 
you've prayed for years for a child or a sibling or a parent to experience freedom from something that holds them in bond and and you recognize that there's nothing that you can do, there's nothing you can say, there's no amount of money that you can give them, no matter the support you can bring. None of that is enough to bring around the transformation. You are utterly dependent upon God to bring that transformation. And the list could just go on and on. From the sun that comes up and the rain that falls and the fertile soil that comes up that produces his Richard Denninger's great corn, you know, that he, he's been telling me about. We're dependent upon God. We, we, we can plant the seed, but we can't make it grow. We're utterly dependent upon God. And it, it is the recognition, the embodiment, the, that literally that sense of dependence upon God becoming the DNA of our spiritual lives that really releases us to walk with God in faith. And so Jesus says, be like the nagging neighbor. Just keep praying and praying and praying and praying because you are that dependent upon God to do there's a second aspect, and this is, was hinted at in a number of the comments that went on. Persistence in prayer is really about relationship. It's not about the provision of the prayer request. Being persistent in prayer is about growing and cultivating that sense of intimacy and relationship with God rather than just getting what we ask for. You know, it's... Um, and, and we often think that prayer is about getting the provision when actually God calls us to persistent prayer about receiving the provision so that all of that together is used to cultivate a sense of relationship and connection and intimacy with Him. I mean, some of you are like in my boat. You've got adult children now, you know? And, and how would you like it, you know, if, the only time you ever heard from your kids is when they called up and they wanted something. You hadn't heard from them in six months and they called up and say, hey, I need $1,000. Can you help me out? Or the only time they came by to visit was to pick up their Christmas present. And that's the only time in the year you saw them. Man, eh, maybe they come on their birthday too, right? You know, that's the only time you ever saw them. How would you feel? I mean, and, and sometimes we approach prayer from that perspective. We think that God is like this cosmic vending machine and that when we need him, we can, it's always open, and we can just go by and put our prayer in the slot, and we can pull the lever we want, and now it's going to drop the answer to our question. That's not what prayer is really about. Prayer is about creating this relationship where it feels natural and normal to say, Our Father, who art in heaven. That's what prayer is about. And persistence in prayer is what drives it. One last aspect to, to this. And again, this was hinted at in your answers. You guys did really good. Persistence in prayer is really about our priorities. It, it, it really kind of brings it down to that place where what really is number one in our lives? What, what is chiefly important in our lives? And when you and I are persistent in prayer, what we're showing is that, that God is a key priority in our lives. And so when we reach out to God and we persist in prayer, not only do, are, are we really committed to what we're asking for, but in the midst of that, we're also demonstrating that God is a chief priority in our lives. And I've got to tell you, life always works better when God's got the right place in our lives. 
when God's number two or three or five or ten or whatever, doesn't work quite as well as when God is number one. So let me try to pull this all together into something maybe we can get our hands on just a little bit better. When you think about persistence in prayer, and it's about embodying and reminding ourselves and cultivating the sense of dependence upon God, when we realize it's about not what we get, but being in relationship with God and cultivating that relationship, it's what we do to help maintain God being the chief priority in our lives, what you begin to see unfold is that at the heart and soul of persistent prayer is the reality that prayer changes us so that we can actually walk with God in faith. Prayer is really about changing us. See, God already knows before we ask. He, he already has said, I'm going I'm to answer when you ask. He cares. He's going to provide. And because, because of that, God's prayer is, is really about God using this communication between us to change us into the shape and the person and the identity, the nature of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what prayer is really about. As you and I cultivate this sense of dependence, as we pursue this relationship with God, as we, as, we, as, as we prioritize the place of God, the role of God in our lives, all of that brings about the fact that it changes us. So here's the thing that I want. When, when, you, when you go, you say, well, how's my prayer life? Okay? How's my prayer life? Here's, here's what I'd say to you, is, is the question, to, to, what, what to look for. It's not so much how many answers to your prayer did you get. It's not so how many minutes in the day did you spend in prayer, or hours in the day, or how many times a day you prayed, or how close you came to praying always. Those, none of those are bad questions. Here's the number one question to ask yourself about your prayer life. is how much has my prayer life been changing me lately? How much has it been changing me spiritually lately? That's the number one question to be asking about our prayer lives. How is God using this persistent prayer to change me? And if we're not changing, then we probably need to rethink our prayer lives. Let's pray together. God, in these moments... We claim your promise that if we ask, we will receive. We claim your promise that if we seek, we will find. God, we claim your promise that if we knock, the door will be open to us. God, change us as we seek you in prayer. So I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite our worship team to come. We're going to have our closing hymn. It's a Great time to sing praises to the God we know that's going to answer our prayers. We're going to collect our offering. You have a moment to express your worship to the Lord through your gifts. And then, as always, I'll invite you to hang around for a few minutes afterwards. Would you stand together as we sing to the Lord and conclude our service this morning?